Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Second Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. And the, the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me in Antioch in, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet... From them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. The pastor and author John Piper once wrote, If the Bible is God's word... By definition, no human authority or human institution can serve alongside the Bible with equal authority. Neither the Pope nor any human council or any scholar or priest or pastor or human tradition has the authority of the Bible if it is God's Word, and it is. So as you know, we are very near the end of our walk through the Gospel of Mark because the next section, which is going to be the final section in our long series, uh, is actually on the resurrection of Christ. And given we are a few weeks away from Easter itself, I felt that it would be a great way for us to wrap up that series uh, by going through the text of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. I felt it was a, a fitting way to finish this series that, that has taken us about two and a half years to get through. And so with that, we have enough time in between Easter and, and now to do a little, short little series that I've been wanting to do for, for quite some, some time now. And that is um, to, to, to work through the five solas of the, of the Reformation, which I think is best remembered um, like this creedal formula. We are saved by sola gratia, which is grace alone, through sola fide, which is faith alone, in solus Christus, or Christ alone, and it is all for soli deo gloria, which is the glory of God alone, and all of it is revealed to us in sola scriptura, or sola, or, or scripture alone. That is the five solas of the Reformation, and I did a series on this about four years ago, um, the five solas, and, and, and as such, you know, it's, it's an important subject, I think, for us to revisit at this point in our, our journey as a church, especially now that we've grown in our church and our theology, especially since we find that the world around us continually finds new and innovative ways to push back against the foundation of our faith. I mean, you think about this right now. A pastor 
in Alberta, Canada, right, turned himself in because the government was after him for having his church open, and they didn't just arrest him, they arrested him and put shackles around his feet as a visible symbol, right? The world is changing around us. The world is changing around us. And so I think it was a, it's a great opportunity for us to come together and revisit this topic, the foundation of our faith, the truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that the plan of redemption... And all that we do as Christians in the world around us is all done for one purpose, and that is the glory of God alone. And the standard by which we judge the veracity of these truths and all other truth around us is Scripture alone. And so we will probably go over some of the same ground we did in the past. And what I realize is I don't oftentimes even remember what I preached on last week, so I'm taking... I guess that you probably don't remember everything we talked about last time, right? But we will cover some of the same ground, but there's some new stuff to talk about. But I promise our time together will be worth it for the next few weeks as we prepare our hearts for Easter. I think it will help us to recenter ourselves. And so we begin this morning by looking back in history at the beginning of the Reformation of the church. About 504 years ago, a Catholic monk and professor of theology named Martin Luther went to the church at Wittenberg, um, the University of Wittenberg in Germany, and he took and nailed a document to the church door. This document was titled the 95 Thesis. Now, for many of us, the nailing of a document to the church door was memorialized in artwork. We've seen the pictures, right, and paintings of Martin Luther, you know, boldly and confidently walking up to this large wooden door. And with deep conviction in his eyes and a serious look on his face, he takes this document and he nails it to the church door. And you can imagine the very loud and ominous hammer strikes as he puts this document up on the wood. And artists portray people standing around watching in amazement, marveling at this brave man who, who would dare stand up to the Catholic church and nail his demands to the door. The problem is, is it, it's... That's not exactly how it happened. Yes, Martin Luther did nail his 95 Thesis to the door, a document that, that was important to him. right? And yes, this event did change the world around us, but at the time and in that moment, it was really not a big deal. In fact, uh, the truth is, nailing something to the church door, as strange as it might seem to us today, was really not an act of rebellion at all. Instead, it was a way to advertise or communicate with other people. Nailing a document to the church door was like us taking a piece of paper and putting a flyer on the window at Boron Food Markets, right? The, the, the church door served kind of as a community bulletin board, and lots of people posted things on the door. So it was not unusual for him to do this. When he nailed this document to the door, he wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary. It was just an, another ordinary day. He certainly didn't think that he was starting a reformation. He just thought he was starting a conversation. He thought that he was inviting people to, to come and debate him on a theological level because he had some really deep questions. He wanted to talk them out. And so on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, on a very normal, otherwise mundane day, uh, calmly nailed these 95 theses to the door. And the truth is, it might have ended just as normally as it started had it not been for the sovereignty of God. 
You see, God in His wisdom and sovereignty had brought a number of things together in history at the exact right moment, and that includes the recent invention of the printing press. The printing press made publication a lot more affordable, and printers were always looking for documents to print that people would eagerly buy. And with that, an, an enterprising printer saw this document, and, uh, and he could see that this invitation to debate might actually stir up some controversy. And you know how publishers are. If it stirs up controversy, they're in to print it, right? right? They, they figured it would entice people to part with their, their hard-earned money, and so he took Martin Luther's 95 Thesis and translated it from Latin, which was used as the university language, and, and made it into the common German and printed it and distributed it all over Germany. And guess what happened? He was right. It sold like hotcakes. Everybody wanted a copy. And Martin Luther's questions and ideas began to catch fire. And the reason for that is because his ideas had resonated with so many other people and their thoughts about the church at the time, and about faith, and many of the questions that they had. And so Martin Luther gave voice to many of what people had been thinking for years. And now the conversation was out in the open. People were beginning to talk about this conversation. And because of that, and because of that one document, the entire world changed. And I, I can't overstate that. Now, how did it change and why? Well, the answer to those questions, you have to understand a little bit more about Martin Luther's own story. You see, Martin Luther was studying to be an attorney. He had no interest in the, in the ministry. But one day he was riding home from the university through the woods and got caught out in a, in a thunderstorm. And as he was riding, the, the storm and the lightning flashed really near him, and he began to become terrified um, and thought he might die. And so what he did is he prayed to St. Anne and began to beg her that if he would survive the night, he would survive the trip home, that he would become a monk in the Catholic Church. And as it turned out, he did survive. And making good on his promise, he left his study of the law behind and became a devoted monk in the Augustinian order. And, and to say that he was devoted is really kind of an understatement because he became the epitome of what a monk was supposed to be. Martin Luther was completely all in for the church and he enthusiastically embraced his life as a monk because he wanted desperately to be right with God. And so Martin Luther pursued a life as a monk with an, with an obsessed focus of perfection. He devoted himself to regular fasting, long hours of prayer, pilgrimages, and frequent confessions. In fact, historians record him as spending as much as six hours in the confession booth. Six hours. Think about that. He was a monk in a monastery. How much trouble can you get in? Right? How much could you possibly confess? Right? But yet he felt that he had so much sin that he spent six hours confessing. In fact, uh, it's recorded that one day the priest who would hear his confessions just refused to see him. said, nope, go do something that's worthy of confessing and then come and talk to me. The thing that we need to understand is Martin Luther was completely committed to, to righteousness. He was fully and painfully aware of his sin and he was deeply remorseful for it and he was rightly terrified of his sin because he knew that if he died in his sin, it could mean his soul. And so he did whatever he 
He did everything in his power that the church prescribed for him to do in order to overcome his guilt. He was a Catholic's Catholic. He was a monk's monk. He confessed. He, he did penance. He served God with all of his heart. He was generous to the poor. He obeyed all the rites and rituals. He did all that was required. And everybody said that he needed to do. And he still found no peace. He even one time went on a pilgrimage to Rome and ascended the Scala Santa, which is a set of stairs that they said that Jesus climbed up on, and it was, it was thought that if you will send the stairs on your knees praying at each step, that you, if you got to the top, would get an indulgence, automatically a free pass into heaven. And, and, and people had did it so often, there were bl- these, these steps were blood-stained by their knees as they ascended these, these, these stairs. And when Martin Luther got to the top, he was even more convicted of his sin than he was before. He denied himself pleasures. He fasted for lengthy periods of time. He did everything in his power to make himself righteous with God. But somewhere within the reaches of his heart, he knew it was not enough. He could not do enough good stuff. He could not do enough external things to extinguish the guilt inside of his heart. Luther, in his own words, described this period of his life as one of deep spiritual despair. He said, I lost touch with Christ, the Savior and Comforter, and made of Him the jailer and the hangman of my poor soul. Imagine the depth of despair he must have been in. He was completely spiritually miserable, but ever devoted and committed to this way of life, he, you know, in the Catholic Church, Luther was sent to the University of Wittenberg where he earned his doctorate in theology and became the leading professor of theology on, on the campus. And while he was there teaching theology in Wittenberg, Martin Luther was working through the book of Romans. By the way, it's the next book that we're going to go through after we get done with Mark. But it was in Romans where he came across the text that would, that would not only change his heart, but would lead to the recovery of the gospel for the rest of the world. It's Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is the text that challenged his entire understanding of justification because in this text, Paul clearly explains how a person is justified. Paul writes, beginning in verse 16, "...for I am not ashamed of the gospel." For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, up to this point, Martin Luther was living in a world where he was taught the righteous live by faith and by following all that the church teaches you. Martin Luther thought the righteous and those who are saved live by faith and the works that they do. He was taught that the righteous live by going to confession. The righteous live by doing penance. The righteous live by working hard and doing everything you could possibly do to make God happy. And so Martin Luther lived in a world where the righteous could never know if they were saved because you could never know if you've done enough because you're having to live by the law and all the rituals and sacraments that in this ever-changing list of things that keep coming down from the Pope. Christians were always trying to overcome their sin by, by their works so they could be righteous before God. But not one of them could know, as he was painfully aware, that, that they could ever satisfy God's desire. You see, the, the, the Catholic theology had evolved 
into this framework of works righteousness. And we can split hairs, and we can talk about this, but the fact of the matter is, it's what it is. According to Catholic faith, when a person is baptized as an infant, they are washed clean from their original sin. They believe that the moment you were baptized as a child, you once were in original sin, and now with the baptism, you're washed clean of your original sin, which means in that moment you were regenerated or born again. And you now then are a state of righteousness, or the state of grace, as they say. And, and, and if you died in that moment, then instant pass to heaven, right? But as a person lives, as we all know, and as we all do, they make mistakes and they have minor sins called venial sins. This, these sins cause them to slip below the line of righteousness required to enter into heaven. Now, now, they're not considered lost yet because they haven't considered, you know, really, really bad, they've done really bad uh, sins, but, but, they are, but they are not able to attain heaven on their own. What they need to do is partake in all of the church sacraments to get back above the line. So it's this continual, I'm good today, and then tomorrow I'm not, right? I'm good today, and then tomorrow I'm, I'm not. It's like having to make confession and, and do penance and things like that. But then there are those people who did who commit the really bad sins, what they call mortal sins. We've, we've heard of those before. Right? You commit a mortal sin, then you've really dropped all the way back to the bottom. You've lost the state of grace completely. In essence, you're, you're having to start over to get right with God. And again, that's the reason why there's a requirement for, for confession and penance and the partic- partaking of all of the church's sacraments. That's the place where Catholic theology had devolved to when it, with respect to justification. It was not simply about the grace of God. It was about your works and what you do continually. It's about continually earning every single day justification before God. But then Martin Luther reads the word of God, words of Paul and says that the righteous shall live by faith. Salvation is for everyone who believes. Salvation and righteousness and justification are not about what we can do to make God pleased with us. It's about believing and, and living by faith in Christ and His finished work on the cross. And that is it. Righteous, he says, the righteous shall live not by self-righteousness and not by effort and works, but by faith alone in the gospel. And that With that understanding, the entire world changed for Martin Luther. Suddenly, he was no longer held captive to the guilt of his sin. He was finally free. As Jesus says in John 8, 36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He was justified, not by what he did to keep the rules. He was justified by by faith and the finished work on the cross. In fact, Luther was recorded as saying, When I discovered that the righteous live by faith, I was born again of the Holy Spirit, and the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. Martin Luther finally had understood the gospel, and was finally, after all of his suffering and and turmoil and torment, he was finally saved and free at last, which then raised an important question for him. If it's true that we are justified by faith, then what about all this other stuff? What about confession? What about penance? What about having to obey the Pope? What about these indulgences? Right? 
How do, how do all these things fit into the Christian life? Because in essence, the Catholic Church said, the righteous must live by our rules. You must be baptized in the Catholic Church. You must attend Mass. You must receive communion. You must be confirmed. You must do this. You must do that. You must live by all of the church's decrees and what the Pope has to say. And the church said that if you die, if you're not perfect in that state of righteousness, but you're not completely lost... You still have venial sins in your life that you didn't get taken care of in this life? Then you go to purgatory, a place, a holding place for Christians who live a life of sin or they have sin in their life when they, when they die. And so when you then are in purgatory, you will stay in purgatory and that you will suffer torment until all of your sins have been paid for by your own suffering. But then there's Plan B, though, a loved one on your behalf could go to the church and then pay money to the priest in exchange for what was called an indulgence, and that indulgence would then reduce how much time you had to spend suffering in purgatory. What a nice way for your family to say, I love you. Right? And here's the thing, the more money that your family paid, the faster you got out of purgatory and into heaven, which in light of Romans 1 makes no sense at all. And so if Martin Luther... If, if his understanding of Romans 1 was, was right, if, his, if the righteous live by faith, what about all this other stuff that the church believes and teaches? I mean, he was a Catholic monk. He was part of the church at the time. And that was the question Martin Luther had. How can the Bible say one thing and seem so clear? And how can the church say something completely different and seemingly so corrupt? It was actually his desire to reconcile these issues because, because understand, he loved the church. It was his desire to reconcile these things and, and that, that, caused them, that caused him to take action. He wrote these 95 theses down of what he understood Scripture to say versus what the church was saying, and he nailed it to the church door, hoping someone would come and have a conversation with him. Right? Understand, this wasn't an act of rebellion. He wanted to debate and either have his understanding corrected if he was wrong, or that he would be able to challenge the church so that the church would correct itself if the church was wrong. Martin Luther simply wanted the truth to shine forth inside of his beloved church. But what happened next was the opposite of that. The church couldn't convince him that he was in error. They could not, from the Scriptures, reason with him and take him off of this truth. Likewise, the church refused to recognize and embrace the truth of justification by faith apart from their other religious requirements. Martin Luther found a distinct unwillingness by the Catholic Church to rethink anything at all, especially the issue of justification, which raised several questions. Why? Why would they not simply recognize the truth that the Scriptures are absolutely clear about? Why do they... You know, why not abandon these extra regulations and, and go back to the foundational truth of the gospel? Well, there's a number of reasons. Among them was the issue of money, right? Because the church raised a lot of money through these sales of indulgences. That's how they built all of those massive cathedrals, by the way. Right? Another was power, because according to the church, you couldn't be saved outside of the church. And so you needed them. And because of that, the church wielded a lot of influence in your life. It was in their interest to keep you in bondage to the church. 
But really the most important reason why the church could not change its stance on justification to match what Scripture said is because the Catholic Church does not lean on Scripture alone for its foundation of theological truth. This is a truth that we have to just accept today. When you talk to someone who is died in the wool in their Catholic faith, and you go to the Scriptures, understand they do not have the same view of Scriptures the way that you do. They do not see it as the only foundation of theological truth. The Catholic Church believed then and still maintains that the truth of God rests not just in the Scriptures, but in two other foundations as well. The first one was the unwritten traditions of the church and the saints. All of the, tr the traditions that they have piled up over 2,000 years, right? they believe are just as authoritative as the, as, as the Scriptures themselves. These traditions that have evolved and have been handed down over time have become as authoritative as the Word of God itself. The second thing that the Catholic Church believed is, and still believes that the, that the truth about God and salvation rests also on the magisterium or the hierarchy, which means church councils and ultimately the office of the Pope itself with, with, uh, that they call papal authority. And so for the, for the church, the Catholic Church, the truth ultimately rests on three things, scriptures, tradition, and what the Pope says. Martin Luther saw that these were contradictory to one another, contradictory authorities. He saw the Bible speak plainly and say that you were justified by faith, but then the tradition and the papal authority said, no, you're saved by faith and all these other things. Which, by the way, takes the gospel and makes it something completely different. Understand, the gospel of Faith alone is vastly, completely different than faith and anything else. They're worlds apart. Now, when he would press the question, as people press the question today about the contradiction between Scripture and authorities, the church would say that your understanding of the Scriptures is wrong because only the magisterium, only the church councils, and only the bishops and the pope can tell you what the Scriptures actually mean. Mere humans don't possess the ability to interpret the text. Only the church can do that. In fact, that's what the Pope says about, what the Pope says about the Scriptures today actually supersedes what the Scripture says itself. When the Pope declares a dogma, that is it, no matter what the Scriptures say. Which means then, for the Catholic Church, the ultimate source of truth is not the Scripture, but it is a man the Pope, a fallible, broken human being, just like you, right? Just in, just more dressed up. Because ultimately in the Catholic Church, the Pope has authority over Scripture and has authority over traditions. He has authority over the church councils. In fact, there is a doctrine that is called papal infallibility. And the doctrine essentially says the Pope, when he is acting as a Pope, cannot be wrong. He's infallible. Now, when, when historians go back and say, but what about when he was wrong? They say, well, in that moment, he wasn't acting as the Pope. Exactly. Becomes very, very subjective really fast. 
But that presents us with a whole other set of problems because throughout history we have seen popes contradict each other. Popes have disagreed with one another. Even in our own lifetime we have seen Francis and Benedict have completely different views about things like hell and about LGBT issues. Fundamental things. Never mind the time in history when there were three popes at one time. I don't know if you ever heard about that, but there were three popes all claiming to be pope at the same time, vying to be the real pope and claiming that all the other ones were false popes and they were all claiming that each, each other were, were heretics and unbelievers. What about then? Seriously, how can, can that be the source of, of infallible truth? The infallible truth that we need to lean on and stake our hope on. You see, for Martin Luther, it came down to one basic question. How do I know what the truth is? How can I go and and know for sure what the truth is? How can I truly know what it means to be saved? With all of these competing outlets of truth, with all of their disagreements, with which foundation is the one on which I can actually take a stand on? What is the final authority for all believers? This is the issue that Martin Luther faced. Who do I believe to know that I'm saved? You see, Martin Luther was not trying to change the world. He was just trying to start a religion. He wasn't even trying to start a religious controversy. And he certainly wasn't trying to split the church up. And he darn sure wasn't trying to start a reformation in the church that affected all of the world. He was just trying to understand the truth about salvation and satisfy that burning question within him. Because he desperately wanted to know God and he desperately wanted to have peace with Him that he could not achieve by the works and efforts. And that's the environment that Martin Luther you know, was in by the grace of God where he came face to face with one of the greatest truths rediscovered during the Reformation. A truth that reflects one of the greatest statements that has ever come out of the entire Reformation. And that statement is sola scriptura. As, or as we say in English, Scripture alone. You see, the one thing that Martin Luther came to understand is this. There must be one objective standard of truth. There must be one standard by which all other truths are judged and held up to. There must be one place where you go to that settles all the disputes And for Martin Luther and for all of Christians today, the Scriptures are it. The Bible is the undisputed objective truth, the objective authority and source of truth for all of us. Now why the Bible and not the unwritten traditions? Why not the magisterium? Why this, this collection of ancient writings that have been handed down to us How come that's the only legitimate final authority over matters of faith? Well, the answer to this question is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul writes, You, however, having followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love and my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. By the way, I think that's a text we should all be mindful of when we see that things get hard, that it's not something unusual happening to us. He says that evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
But, for, but as for you, continue what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from the childhood that you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, what's able to make you wise for salvation? Your own heart? No, the Scriptures. And in that context, Paul says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In this text, Paul makes it clear, a clear declaration about the Scriptures that we cannot ignore. If you ignore this, then you have no foundation to stand on. He says that all Scripture, not some of it, all Scripture has been breathed out by God. And understand what he says. He's saying here, right? He's talking about not some random collection of writings throughout history. He's not saying that every word that's ever been written is the Word of God. That's not what he's saying here. He's talking specifically about the Bible. He's talking about the collection of Scriptures that we have in the Bible. That's what he means when he says Scripture. And he says all Scripture, every bit of it, is, every word of it is breathed out by God. Now, this is a very important expression for us in, in the Greek. Some translations say that, that Scripture was given by inspiration of God, and that's not a bad rendering of the text. But the problem is many people bring to the table some really weird preconceived ideas, and they will misinterpret this text based on what they perceive inspiration to mean. Some people will, will say that the Bible was inspired by God, meaning that men have written the Bible, and they were inspired by God's goodness. You know, they were inspired you know, by God's beauty. They were inspired by His grace. And that just led them to write out of their own accord what they had wrote, as if they're writing something like a poem. You know how a poet write something inspired because they're inspired by a sunset or a loved one or something. This inspiration, many people think of this external force that just kind of stirs up a natural affection that they already have. But that is not the idea that's being communicated in what Paul is saying here. The expression that we find in this text comes from the Greek word theanoustos. Theanoustos. And the word theanoustos literally means God breathed or God exhaled. It doesn't mean that he was, God was inspiring. It means God actually breathed. In fact, the word is made up of two words, theo, which is God, and nuo, which is breathed. And so what Paul is saying is quite literally that Scripture is the very breath of God. And we really have to understand what that means, because when you decide to communicate to somebody through speech... What's the first thing that you do? You inhale, right? And then when you begin to speak, you start doing what? Exhaling, letting breath out over your vocal cords so that you can actually form audible words. That's how you speak. It is by breathing. If you don't think so, try speaking without breathing. When you wake up, tell me how that worked. The expression theanoustos, or God breathe, literally means God speaking. Or in other words, all of Scripture is God Himself talking. That's what Scripture is. It is the very Word of God, not words of men right, that God influenced, but they were the very words of God written down by men as God spoke them and moved them along. All Scripture, not some of it, but all Scripture is 
is, is the very breath of God. It is the very words of God Himself. In fact, when I read the Scripture to you a moment ago, right, I was not... I was the one reading it for sure, but God was the one that was speaking. By the way, that's why when we read the text in the beginning, I say, and the word of the Lord reads, because that is Him speaking. Right? When, when you read the word of God, whether you read it out loud or silently, God is speaking to you. So when somebody asks me, I'd really love to hear God speak, I say, well, then read the word, because He does. Well, I want to hear Him out loud. Well, then read out loud. That way you'll hear Him out loud. All Scripture, every word of it, is the very Word of God, which means then a number of important things. And now we're finally to the place where you can start filling some stuff in. It means a number of important things. First of all, it means that the Scripture is true. Right? Because God is true. If God is true, then His Word must be true. He cannot lie. Right? Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the Son of Man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall not he do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? If Scripture is God's Word, then it must be true. Every single word of it. Secondly, the Word of God must also then be inerrant. It's without error. Why? Because God is perfect. God is the perfection of all of His attributes. God is so holy that He's perfect in every possible conceivable way that we can't even relate to it unless He actually held, helped, helped us to see Himself through, the, through His Word. Because He is perfect, His Word is inerrant. Now, does that mean every translation we have is inerrant? No, it does not mean that. It means the words, when they were written down in Greek and Hebrew, were inerrant. And we have copies of it that are super, super close to the originals. So there might be some differences in, in words between translations, but the heart of the message is perfect. It is inerrant. We can depend on it. It is without error. Third thing is His Word is authoritative. Right? Why? Because it's His Word. We are His creation. We are His creatures. We belong to Him. He has absolute authority over our lives, and that means His Word has authority for us. It is authoritative over us. And then fourth, the Bible, being God's Word, is sufficient for us. It's enough. God's Word is sufficient to accomplish all that He has set out to accomplish in fact, that's what Paul makes clear in his text. He says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and training in righteousness. The Word of God is sufficient to communicate what God wants to communicate to us. It is sufficient to help us see the truth of what we need to know to be saved. It is sufficient to change us and shape us into the image of Christ. It is sufficient to bring salvation the Word of God is sufficient for all of Christian life, and that's why there are no new books being written. That's why there is no modern-day prophets like there were of old, because we don't need them. Now, the reality is, is I do believe that God still speaks actively in people's lives. I believe that, that God speaks through, through the preaching ministry. As long as it's God's words, that will have an effect on your life. But I want you to understand, I will never stand up here and say, I am 
a prophet of God like Jeremiah. That is abs- I have, I'm terrified to say anything like that because there is none of that. God's word is sufficient for us. It's sufficient for us to even know God's will. Sometimes people say, I would really like to know God's will for my life. I wish He would reveal His will in my life. Well, Paul answers that question for us in Romans chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is the spirit, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, by implication by the word of God that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is acceptable and perfect. The Word of God is completely sufficient for us to know God's will and for us to be saved. As Paul said, it is the power of God for salvation. Not fancy preachers, right? Not persuasive arguments, right? Not sandwich boards and berating people, right? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And finally, the Word of God is powerful. And I don't think we ever think enough about this or believe this enough. The Word of God is powerful. He tells us, Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, For the Word of God is, a lot, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him whom we must give an account. The Word of God is absolutely powerful. It's powerful enough to cut us to the core. It's powerful enough to expose who we are before a holy and righteous God. It's powerful enough to make us alive. The Bible actually is alive and contains life. The Word of God is active. It's at work in our hearts and in the world around us. The Scriptures, because they are the very Word of God, are true, inerrant, and they are authoritative and sufficient, and they are powerful. And because of that, they're the foundational truth by which we judge all other things. That's why Martin Luther appealed to Scripture alone. All men and all of our traditions and all counsels and decisions and and, and all people and authority must be subject to and judged by the Word of God and not the other way around. But the Catholic Church tried to make Scripture subject to tradition. But as we know, traditions are not God-breathed. Tradition is man-made and in response to the Word of God. Now, please understand, not all traditions are bad. Not all traditions are incorrect. In fact, many of the traditions that we hold to are very, very helpful and help us to worship the Lord. But all traditions must be subject to the scrutiny of the Word of God and not the other way around. Right? We, as a church family, have been, for the last several years, examining every part of how we worship the Lord here, how we read the Scriptures, how we sing songs, how we pray together, all the little things. We're not, we, we, we don't assume that our traditions are correct. We're going back to the Scriptures and examining those things, and we've been slowly conforming those things to the Scriptures because we want for the Scripture to be supreme in our worship. The Catholic Church also tried to make Scripture subject to the rulings of councils. Again, rulings of councils are the rulings of fallible men. Right? They're, not, they're not theonoustos. They're not God's breath. 
Now, many church councils have done many good things in history. And again, I don't want to be one of those type of people that lumps everything together all in one space. The truth is there have been a lot of great councils that have done great work and godly men throughout history have come together to talk and think through important theological issues, right? And, and even to this day, there are many things that we lean on and many of their wisdom, much of their wisdom that we hold to be the foundation of our truth. We lean on the teachings from the past. But understand these councils are a response to the Word of God and they are shaped by the Word of God but they have no authority over the Word of God. And the Catholic Church also tried to continue, and still continues to this day, to make Scripture subject to papal authority. In fact, in the Catholic Catechism that you can find on the Vatican website today, this is what they teach, right? In, in paragraph 100 it states, the task of interpreting the Word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the Church, that is to the Pope and to the bishops in communion with Him. That's what they believe. That's a foundation of what they teach is only they know what the Scriptures are actually teaching. By the way, that's why they made Scriptures illegal for people to have for centuries. In other words, God is subject to the authority of man, papal authority, and papal interpretations. But, but here's the thing. None of those things not even the Catholic catechism is theonostos. None of it is the Word of God. They are words of men, and they have no authority over the Scripture. Right? The final authority for all Christians, I want you to hear me on this, the final authority for all Christians has been and must always be and will continue to be long into the future. In fact, Jesus said, my word will not pass away. Right? The final authority that we have will always be the Word of God. And it is. In fact, our statement of faith says this, and I actually included this in your notes so that you could have it. But in the very first article of our statement of faith, it says, the Holy Bible is written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of Himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore... All Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and other religions, religious opinions shall be tried. I don't know if you realize that, but that's a brilliant, clear statement about what we believe about the Bible. Like, I've tried to talk about this so many times, and I'm like, this is brilliant. I just need to memorize what they just said. It covers all the bases. But then you have the London Baptist Confession of Faith. It actually does all that in one sentence. In the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, it says, The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Crystal clear. If you were truly a Christian... Your final authority in all matters of faith, life, and life have, have been and must always be the Word of God alone. And that's what Martin Luther and the subsequent reformers stood on. And that truth changed the world because the world found that salvation is not through the church, it is not through our works, but instead it is through the three solas. Right? Salvation is sola gratia, grace alone through sola fide, 
which is faith alone, and in solus Christus, or in Christ alone. See, the Catholic Church did affirm the value of Scripture and say that you had to be saved by grace through faith, but the church refused to acknowledge the all-important word, sola, the important Reformation word, alone, because the church believed that your faith had to be accompanied by something else. It had to be accompanied by your works, and that Right, and, and that your grace had to be accompanied by something else, by your merits. They actually have, by the way, just on this little side, they have what's called the treasury of merit. That saints have had so much merit in their life that, that they had too much for them to get into heaven that they actually get put into some heavenly box and that then you then, through indulgences and through other ways, have that merit, that merit applied to you to help cover up your... You see what I'm saying? It's... Yes. Yes. And, and here's the thing. I would say that your average Catholic doesn't think about these things. But that's absolutely what's being taught to the church. Right? Your average Catholic just goes to church and is trying their very best to know God. But this is the theology that, that keeps them in bondage. Right? And that Christ Himself had to be accompanied by something else. Right? He has to be accompanied by other mediators in the church. That's why they pray to Mary. They call her the mediatrix or the female mediator. Which just makes me, just saying that word makes me your lightning coming out of the sky. You know what I mean? Because there's one mediator between God and man. But Martin Luther and the Reformers stood up against his heresy and against these lies that progressively grew into the church over a period of time. You have to understand this didn't happen overnight. This was a slow theological drift over time as people lose sight of the fundamentals of their faith. But the Reformers declared with a united voice that our final authority for all matters of faith and practice is sola scriptura, Scripture alone, the very Word of God. Scriptures reveal that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and by no other means. That is the total sum of the gospel, by the way. I want you to realize it. That's the sum total of the gospel. The Scriptures reveal that we are helpless, broken sinners, incapable of making ourselves right with God. Scriptures further reveals that, that we are completely incapable of choosing God on our own because we're dead, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, dead in our sins and trespasses. And because of that, we are children of God's wrath. And because of that, we, have, we rightly deserve the justice and the wrath of God upon us. <clears throat> but, then, <clears throat> but then God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, in the world. Jesus, who was fully God, became fully man, lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, securing for you a righteousness that you can't earn on your own, and then died to make payment for your sins, and then was resurrected proving that you can trust in Him. And if, you, if we believe in Him, if we will repent and believe the gospel, you will be saved and have eternal life because the righteous, the justified, will live not by works, not by your church attendance, but by faith alone. That was the earth-shattering truth that Martin Luther embraced, and that is the truth that, that, that caused the, the Catholic Church at the time to declare Luther a heretic, and that is a truth that launched the Reformation that absolutely unequivocally changed the world forever. And by the way, that's the truth that we hold on to today. Our final authority is the Word of God, and we're saved by sola gratia, through sola fide, in solus Christus, for sola della gloria, or the glory of God alone. By the way, you're, you're getting more Latin than you ever thought you would, right? <laughs> yes. 
Now that began 500 years ago. And so what does this have to do with the church now? Why do we even talk about this today in 2021? Well, really quickly, there's a number of reasons, and I'll go through them very fast. First of all, Martin Luther and the Reformers and this doctrine of Sola Scriptura were, were, you know, we are, because of them, we are gathered today in this building and not down the street. We are here because we don't believe that the church's traditions are equal to Scripture. We don't believe that the magisterium is equal to the Word of God and authority. And we certainly don't believe that the magisterium is the only group of people who can interpret Scripture. And it's because of the Reformation, we are not hopelessly caught up in a cycle of works, hoping and praying that we might get to be saved. Secondly, it's important because for us to talk about this because people, so many people don't even believe in Sola Scriptura, including many people who call themselves Christians. That's a really scary prop- proposition. Today, many people believe that there are multiple sources of ultimate truth, such as tradition or, 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 you know, or reasoning abilities or philosophy or personal experience or feelings or even culture. There are lots of people in our postmodern world who believe that the Bible is only a source of truth, but not the source of truth. That's why we hear so many people you know, talk about the Bible as simply as a collection of ancient manuscripts. Not so much the written Word of God, but a collection of just ancient writings that we should read. There are many people who think that a lot of what the Bible teaches is just relevant only for the time that was written and doesn't have any relevance for for today, at least not for certain issues. There are some who think that certain parts of the Bible are true and not others. In fact, some groups of people who call themselves red-letter Christians who say that the only words in the Bible that are true are the red ones, what Jesus said. And they said that basically you can ignore all of what Paul and James and John and Peter had written. There's even a famous pastor of a megachurch who thinks that the Bible is just a book about being human. And he says that it describes the, the evolutionary thought you know, written down to, to deepen our understanding of what it means to be living in an enlightened life. And he says that the Old Testament was just a collection of allegories. He even goes so far to say that he didn't believe that Jesus had to die. He just believed that Jesus was murdered against his will, that, that, that his death wasn't necessary for our salvation. Prominent megachurch pastor, right? And, and he's not alone. More and more people are confessing Christians look at the Bible as something other than God's authoritative word, right? right? But we must stand firm on the truth that it is his word. And in our culture... For many in our culture, experience and emotions and feelings rank higher than the authority of, of God's Word. We see it all over the place, by the way. When you, when you, when you hear what's, what's even being talked about in the halls of, our, of Congress, right? You, you know this riddled with emotions and feelings rather than what the Word is actually saying. Right? There's others like a famous priest who said that I would, he would rather go to hell than believe in a God that doesn't affirm homosexuality regardless of what the Word has to say. There are people who say that Jesus was just a man and a good example. For many others, their emotions and personal experiences dictate their understanding of the Bible. Right? They push, right? Today's push in the Congress, again, about sexual ethics, or even you know, the pastor that's been arrested in Alberta, Canada. What's, dri- what's the driving force behind that? Fear, right? Fear and political intrigue. Right? And then you, you can take these emotions 
And people use them to color how they actually read the text of Scripture instead of the other way around. You see, we are to examine the world through the lens of Scripture. We're to take all that we see, whether it's about being a parent or working for a living or living your life or whatever part of life that you want to anticipate, and you read that through the lens of Scripture, but people are taking the opposite approach and saying, I'm going to read the Scripture in, through the lens of my, my feelings. And it's the same for other traditions as well. Right? People will interpret Scripture in light of their tradition rather than Scripture reading tradition. The Roman Catholic's idea of purgatory and Mary worship, these are traditions that the Bible clearly don't teach. Right? But it's the same thing with the prosperity gospel today. Right? There are people, even in our own community, who won't come here, but they'll, they'll listen to the prosperity preachers on TV. And I understand, if a person's getting fed somewhere, really getting fed, I don't care where they get fed from. They don't have to come to church here. Right? But there's lots of prosperity preachers out there that are telling people what they want to hear. Right? And people believe it simply because they want to believe it, rather than what the church actually has, what the Bible has to say. Right? People reject the issue that maybe God's not here to make you rich. Right? Or they reject the truth that maybe God right, isn't really sovereign. They, 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 some people just reject that idea of God's sovereignty because of their emotions and philosophy. And then you have groups who claim to be Christian that, that they have you know, additional revelation, extra books, you know, whole extra testaments, they say that supposedly were an additional thing that you add to the Bible and then interpret all the Bible through that lens. And then there's other groups of people that say, well, actually, we have Greek scholars that nobody else has. We won't tell you who they are, right? But we've rewritten the Bible that, that says that you guys are all wrong. By the way, it doesn't matter what all the other scholars in the world say. right? They have extra revelation that's superseding what the Word actually has to say. Some of these extra books and some of these supernatural abilities to, to learn and know Greek... And some of these supposed prophetic revelations, right? All of these things are lenses that they apply to the scriptures. By the way, just one little note on how sometimes people with their prophetic utterances they have for the world. Do you realize how many TV preachers stood up for weeks and 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 weeks, and weeks saying that Donald Trump was going to win the election? That God said to me that Donald Trump's going to win the election, right? Okay, you, you heard what happens in the Bible when somebody makes a prophecy in God's name and they're wrong, right? That means by all implications, they are false prophets and you shouldn't listen to them, so stop sending them money, right? Yeah. So, that's a whole different topic. But regardless of this, this extra biblical revelation supersedes for them the Bible. But the Bible clearly says that it's the alone objective standard for God. Now, the overarching point I want to make here is this. Every document written, every supposed revelation, every emotion that we might have, every thought, every argument, every tradition, every mode of reasoning, all of these things must be critiqued in the light of Scriptures and not the other way around. Right? Sola Scriptura is the final authority on all matters of truth, all matters of faith in practice. Not our feelings, not our traditions, not what grandma said, right? right? Not what the culture says, not what the, what, what, what the consensors of pastors today say. The only certainty that we have 
is the Word of God, and certainly not what the government says. The Bible is the infallible, inerrant, divine Word of God, and Martin Luther helped to rediscover that truth for us 500 years ago. Paul makes it clear that the Word of God is His very breath. The truth that the Word of God is the final authority about God and who we are in light of that. And the truth that we then praise the Lord for. Because without this truth, we lose the gospel, by the way. Right? Because, of, because the, the Word of God is true, then we can know for a fact that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Because the Word of God is breathed out by Him. And this, not anything else, is our final authority for all of our life. Let us praise the Lord for that. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.